No one signs a record deal and has a manager come up to them and go, there's a good chance you're going to be really famous. Here's a pamphlet on how to not be a Money and fame can show you who you are. And one of the things you said is the person I was when I was 27 was a fucking monster. When I became famous, I just went a bit off the rails with drugs and alcohol. I think there was just this one weekend at Glastonbury where I just kind of disappeared for 48 hours. I was in an absolute state. What was the cost? Well, it's just not nice to see your parents cry, you know? I look back as it being one of the worst weeks ever. And then I met Aaron. Just watching someone grow a baby and give birth is like one of the most sobering experiences ever. You tragically had a miscarriage on your second. I remember I was invited onto Lorraine and I was meant to go on and talk about a single on a tour. Just before I went on, they went, we just found out you lost a second baby. Do you want to make the whole interview about that? I got so many messages from guys after just going, that's amazing you went on and spoke about that. I've realized there's been the first times I've spoken about things that I should have probably spoken about with friends or family a long time ago. If you were advising a younger Elliot, what would you say in terms of the components that make for a good life? I've often thought about this. So without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is The Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. things I always try and do again because I I tend to believe that we are all a product of our like of typically our significant childhood events whatever they might be when I look at your story I was hazarding a guess as well I was saying well this was obviously quite a key moment this is the key moment but in your own words what were those catalyst key moments from your childhood that ultimately shaped you to become who you are today oh wow um I think in terms of Work ethic um, is definitely from my mum and dad. I was very aware as a kid, um, you know, even, like, even before as a teenager, how much time and effort my mum and dad put into work. Like, they're both working class and they both came from very humble beginnings. But I think the main thing I was aware of is that my dad was always away working as a kid. I was also aware that a lot of my friends' parents weren't together. You know, they were, a lot of them were raised by just their single mums. Um, but then I also saw how much effort my mum put in. She was she didn't have a day job, but I could see how hard my mum worked, especially with my dad being away. So I think the work ethic thing has helped me a great deal in terms of where I've got to. Um, part not so much anymore, but partly trying to impress them or you know feeling like I uh, lived up to their standards. Maybe in my early twenties, mid twenties. Apart from you know like my parents' influence as a kid. I think mainly, I'd say that, the, you know, the culture at school in terms of music culture, London, I grew up in Fulham. I went to school in Wandsworth. And even though it was a really nice school in terms of it was a modern school, it was a technology college. Was, uh, I said the majority of kids I went to school with all lived on council estates. And I didn't, but I spent a lot of time down there. So I think that was really good in helping me not only understand, um, different cultures and therefore as a result where the music cultures came from just like how other people live and how other people you know what people have to go go through you know like some of my best friends their mums would have five jobs mm. and they'd be living in two bedroom uh, council flats with like seven siblings so i think that even though i didn't live that life it was quite opening to see that 
Um, did, at, did you enjoy school? Loved school. Loved, I, I, I loved drama, loved maths. I was really good at maths, but not very good at English, which is weird because I use the English language. I manipulate the English language for, <laughs> for financial gain, really. <laughs> but um, yeah, I wasn't very good at English and wasn't very good at science because I wasn't interested in them. I wasn't really interested in religious studies because I always found there was like, occasionally you see the different you know, religions, whether it's Sikh, Hindu, Muslim, Christian, there'd be like little squabbles in the playground. So I kind of didn't like that religion could segregate people. Mm -hmm. So, but everything else I was interested in, geography, mass, drama, art, music, I excelled at and loved because, you know, I loved going to school. My mum was always like, you were an absolute nerd when it comes to school. You like, you couldn't wait to get there and you couldn't wait to tell me about everything you'd learned that day. And you couldn't wait to get there the next day. And when it was coming to the end of school holidays, you couldn't wait to get back to school. So I, I think I, I enjoyed structure. And I enjoyed either the attention from being a class clown at, at playground, you know, playtime, because mm -hmm. I wasn't ever very good at sport. I was good at running in a straight line or swimming in a straight line, but I wasn't good at team sports. Mm -hmm. So I think um, I I really felt like that school was good for not only my brain, which was always a bit hyperactive, but also I got this outlet of doing making people laugh by doing impressions. Why did you care about that making people laugh? Because I did, I just think I felt like. I don't know, I've, I've always enjoyed being an attention seeker. Um, my mum said that when I was, a, you know, very young, like five, five, six years old, she felt like I was a misbehaving a lot at school and she made a decision to put me on stage in the local drama, drama group. I definitely think my mum spotted something in me which was like, this kid needs to perform and he needs attention and that's his outlet and that sort of levels him out a bit. I'm surprised to hear that you were so keen to get back to school because I also read that you were at some point bullied by the other kids. Yeah, I was, but I think because my mum and dad did such a good job in sort of, I don't, I can't, I can't even remember any specific lessons, but I just know that my mum always made me feel loved and uh, understood, you know? So if I was, if I'd go home and just be like, yeah, they took the piss out of my teeth again today or they took the piss out of my ears again today or whatever she'd just be like son we are all built differently like we all you know she'd be like your dad had funny ears when i met him and he's the most beautiful man in the world as far as i'm concerned you know just little lessons mm -hmm. like that so i just think there was so much love at home that whatever hit me on the outside world whether that was down the local park you know with little kids in gangs or at school i just felt like i was mentally prepared for it Mm. And then I think that kind of helped. It gives you quite a thick skin in terms of when it comes to you get into the music business. It's like you have to deal with so much um, disappointment. Like when I think like I've been doing this, I'd say, you know, I got my first record deal in 2006, but I was releasing music in 2004. Um, I've played over a thousand gigs, you know, like most of my peer group have disappeared now um, from say 2010, 2011. When I think of like my peer group from around then, like Chasing Status and Sub Focus are still going. Um, but most of the other artists that I came up with have kind of disappeared or semi-retired or are kind of just sort of like doing their own thing on the peripheral now, whereas I'm still very much, my focus is like, I'm, I'm only competing myself. I used to worry so much about competing with them, you know? Mm. And you got a, you got a diagnosis at a fairly young age for for having Asperger's. Yeah, well, yeah, but I've been, I 
my mum was quite good in it. I think she, uh, I think uh, whether it was, I don't, I can't remember because I was so young, but it would have either been from her friends, you know, other mums down the park going, Elliot's a bit, you know, on the spectrum. And, you know, what's, what's up with him? Because I was such a, I suppose, like hyperactive kid. Mm. And I, I sort of seemed to flip between different personalities all the time. But I also had these weird, you know, weird sort of like uh, nervous twitches. Mm. Um, and I would, uh, but I had a photographic memory for like, even at a young age, I'd be like, just look at a list of, I don't know, like the American states and just memorize them very like within two or three reads. Or I'd get the Trivial Pursuit box out and memorize every single question in a box of Trivial Pursuit. Just so when we came to play with like neighbors or friends or family at a barbecue, I knew the answer to everything. I think my dad then clocked that I'd memorize them all, but <laughs> instead of telling everyone that I'd memorize them all, he was like, yeah, my son's really, really sharp. He's really well, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> things like that, you know. How does that sit with you now, that that, that diagnosis? And do, do you still... Well, I just think every, there's no way of know, knowing who what anyone is. I think you, everyone can be a little bit of... Everything. Everything. It's not, it's, it's not clear cut to just go, this person is mm. this diagnosis based on, you know, research mm. by doctors and scientists and other patients it's very hard because i think every human being has a little bit of mm. of something and you could you can't just say someone is 100 percent definitely got thing, this yeah. you know that thing so i, I prefer I, I can see some things in my eldest already where he shows certain similarities to me as a kid but then erin says no i used to do that as a kid as well and she's a bit mad like me as well but i think weird is good <laughs> I definitely think weird is good and I think it's special. And I think my mum spotted that. So I'm kind of glad that I was never put onto any special programs or put into any special school or extracurricular activities or even on light medication. I'm quite, you know, I'm quite thankful for that because I've got friends my age who've been on meds since they were kids and are still on some form now, you know, and they think they're bipolar or aspergic or ADHD. And, and I'm like, there's one actually a really close friend of mine who I actually encouraged him to maybe have like six months off. And he uh, he's better for it now and he doesn't take the meds anymore. He's like, you know, he's better at dealing with his, uh, let's say his demons and his, you know, his thoughts maybe that used to haunt him and scare him. He's, he's stopped taking the meds and he's, he doesn't take them anymore. He's better, he's better for it. Have you, have you ever had any of those demons, especially at a young age, that you used to contend with? I think the main thing, and I still contend with it now, is sometimes I just have so many thoughts. And uh, I'm not like a warrior. I've never been a warrior because I've always known how to compartmentalize stuff and I'm, I'm really good with admin. I'm really good at multitasking. But I've, I've, it's kind of been a gift and a curse. Like it's I've either been having a whole, say, film script or scenario in my head going round and round that I can't seem to switch off. And that might be whilst I'm in a meeting. I'm not doing it now. It might, <laughs> it might, be, it might be, you know, like, when I say I'm multitasking, I'm like, I can sometimes be in the studio writing a song, but have a shopping list in my head that I just can't seem to get rid of. <laughs> um, which is why yoga can be really good for me. And, and like, you know, breath work, like Wim Hof style, yeah, yeah, yeah. that really levels me out. Mm. Um, but like, for instance, like I, when I'm freestyling, you know, like, and I don't mean like pre-written raps that people go out and perform in a 
rap battling. Yeah. I mean, like just like freestyling, like mm -hmm. rhyming. I sometimes I'll be at the gym and I'll be there for 45 minutes and the whole time I'm there, I'm freestyling in my head. And it could be about what that person is wearing, what exercise that person's doing, what music's playing. And it's kind of gift and a curse because it's great for, you know, when you're producing songs, just words being able to just fall out, flow out, but also just like not being able to switch off sometimes. So I'll be in a room having a conversation with someone and they're like, you're not listening, are you? And I'm like, I'm really sorry, but I've got... A shopping list. <laughs> a shopping list. <laughs> you're like, okay, what are you, what are you getting later? Yeah. And I'm just there like, Swiss cheese, light Swiss cheese. No, no. I've just got a very overactive brain. You, you talked about failure a second ago. You said, you know, going into the music industry, there's a lot, you met with a lot of failure and ups and downs. After your first album, um, your first studio album, I was reading about your kind of, your feelings and sentiments towards it. It sounded like you were going to quit. Yeah, I think you have to be prepared for disappointment in this industry, especially because I'm about to release my eighth album. And I don't really have any expectations for it other than whoever hears it, I hope really enjoys it. I don't really know how many streams it's going to do or... It's just, you have to be quite robust in the sense that you may put so much time and effort into a song and Radio 1 or Capital turn around and don't playlist it. Or you make a song and think, this is going to perform really well on Spotify because it should get on the workout playlist. And or get on the UK house playlist and maybe this could do well in Germany. And like, not that I make music like that, but once the song's finished, you can't help but have expectations for it. And then to think that you might have spent, you know, I might've written it in four or five hours, but then spent six months perfecting the mix downs and adding instrumentation and so on, or adding a, another vocalist or a feature to it. And then to think that that might come out and someone's, someone somewhere is like, nah, I'm not actually into this when I was signed to Ministry of Sound, there was so much pressure, like, you know, constant meetings every week. I wouldn't go to them because after a while they get too intense, but it was like, we're Radio 1 are, are discussing this in playlist this week. We're hopefully going to go on the C list next week. And then two weeks later, we're hopefully going to move up to the B list. And then the aim is weaker release, we're going to be on the A list and we should be getting 11 to 15 spins a week. And, you know, hopefully we'll go in straight in into iTunes with pre-orders into the top 10 and we'll climb to number one. And, MTV are fully behind this and you're going to do a live lounge next week and Capital have just come on board with it. And it's all, you know, it's, it's great when you're flying, you know, and obviously I was having number one singles and top tens, it's great, but you realise the pressure that artists are put under and managers and then, then the pressure that the record labels are putting on themselves, you know, to compete with, the, you know, because they've got to bring in X amount of mm. revenue as, you know, if you're in marketing or A&R, they're under pressure from your bosses. And then the artists are under pressure from the label and then the managers are under pressure from what the artist expects. And it's actually a losing formula. Money and fame, they often say, can show you who you are or it can bring out the, the, the best and worst in you. And one of the things you said is the person I was when I was 27 was a fucking monster compared to the person I was when I was 21. Yeah. What did you mean by fucking monster? I was just, um, well, see, so I, I hadn't tried... Uh, class a drugs until i was 23 which is mad because most of my friends and peer group in music and i grew up with were it probably doing it at 14 um and then i just think when i became famous uh, and, and came into money i just went a bit off the rails with drugs and alcohol but i was also in a relationship where i was lying to my girlfriend and cheating on her and i was just 
everywhere I was going, girls were throwing themselves at me and people wanted to party with me and people were doing everything they could to try and keep me awake all night with them. You know, whether it was girls or bad influences, other celebrities, you know, and then you get carried away because you're like, oh my God, I'm hanging out with such and such actor and such and such footballer and this model and this person and we're, we've got access to this bar and this club and we've walked straight into this restaurant and got a table. So you just go off the rails a bit. And I feel like everybody kind of needs to when you get to that stage. Every artist, actor that I've spoken to, whether they've chipped away at it for years like I did or just had this sudden overnight fame, I feel like you kind of need to get it out of your system. Because it's kind of like, it's not, I'm not saying everyone has to, but nearly everybody I know is just like, oh my God, how amazing does this feel? Like, I'm getting free clothes and free trainers and I've just been given a free car. I'm getting upgraded on this flight and I've got this table at this restaurant that I couldn't get before. I've been invited to this premiere. And I was just on that television show with that Hollywood actor. And then I'm in this person's house, you know, this person's giving me free drugs and this girl wants to sleep with me and this girl, these girls want to free some and then all this shit. So like, why would you not take it? Because you get to do something that, you know, it's like a one in a million thing. No one else gets to do this. And you don't, you don't go, I need to do this because no one else gets to do it. You're just like, this is fun. This is fun. This is mad. Like my life's mad right now. And I just defy <laughs> anyone to not to not do the same. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes like top level athletes because they have to, their focus is being an athlete. So it's all about the body and their fitness. They can't do drugs and alcohol in the same way. So I think for a lot, that's why a lot of footballers just end up like, oh, I'm gonna have 15 cars or I'm gonna get a gambling addiction <laughs> because so everyone needs some kind of vice, I guess. I mean, all human beings need some kind of vice anyway. I think, I think that's how we're built. We're not meant to just live squeaky clean, like constantly. Like I think life's boring. Like, and it doesn't have to be sex or drugs and alcohol, but someone, you need something. You need something to obsess over that feels a little bit like naughty, a little bit edgy. What was the cost? Because I mean, all that sounds great, but there's gotta be, everything in life has a cost. Well, the cost was that I, you know, I broke a, a, a lovely girl's heart and, you know, I'm, it took her a while to deal with that, I'm sure, afterwards. And, you know, I, I probably upset quite a few people along the way. I know my parents weren't proud of me, even though I was doing really well career-wise. Um, there was like a moment when there was a bit of an intervention. You know, it was almost like, what have you become? You know, we're not proud of you. This is not cool. What, what caused that? I just, I think there was just this one weekend at Glastonbury where I just kind of went down with my band and crew and my girlfriend and my sister and I just kind of just completely went off the radar kind of disappeared for 48 hours and then everyone was like where is he and obviously Glastonbury is a crazy place to get lost in anyway and then I just turned up 15 minutes before I went on stage so I was still professional <laughs> but I was like I was uh I was in an absolute state around like 2012 no 2010 to 2012 well it wasn't great when your family stage an intervention, what does that look like in like real terms? Is that like a phone call or is that? Well, no, it's like sort of catching me off guard and sitting me down in a in a room, you know, and showing me how disappointed they are. And how did you take that? Well, it's just not nice to see your parents cry, you know. It's quite, you know, it still took me a, a few years after that to get my act together. Um, but yeah, I just... I don't, I don't feel like there's any real shame in it looking back. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm proud of it, but 
I just feel like certain mistakes have to be made. It's like in the same way that I don't really have any regrets about anything. I'm just like everything I've ever done in life, however bad it is, whoever I've hurt or whatever, I've learned from it and I've tried to make amends for it, you know? Did, is there, in hindsight, information that you didn't have that caused you to choose that path? Like, is there something you, you, you now you know that is stopping you from repeating that cycle and just continuing to do that? Well, it's just like, I mean, like, my mum always said, like, as a kid, she was like, I was, I was a liar as a kid. But she said they were like, not really lies that really hurt anyone. She said, I just knew that you're, you had this overly creative brain and this imagination. So you would just take situations and just exaggerate them. Mm. And she was like, and it kind of makes sense that you're a songwriter and you're a storyteller. And I get that. And looking back now, you never, there were certain times where I know it would have really upset my parents and my mum in particular, because she was spending more time with me probably day to day. Um, you know, I like telling like little white lies about scenarios that had happened just because I sort of enjoyed the fact maybe that I could attention seeking, could manipulate a situation, that I could take a situation and my imagination run wild with it and create other scenarios. And I think that was uh, it's something that I don't do at all anymore, but like lying as a kid and then carrying that through. I didn't, then obviously realize at school, you can't get away with certain things because you know, there's structure and there's teachers. So it probably calmed me down a bit then. And then I'd had like four serious girlfriends and I'd never once cheated on them. Cause it just wasn't on my radar. It wasn't the way I've been brought up, but it was just like, I guess, and I've spoken to other guys about this and girls. It's just like, you have that first time you do it, you feel bad and then one becomes two and then two becomes five and five becomes 10. And then it just kind of spirals out of control and you kind of just like numb your brain to it. And I just don't think there's no, no one signs a record deal or gets into the music industry and has a record label or a manager come up to them and go, by the way, there's a good chance you're going to be really successful and famous in the next year or two years. So read this book. <laughs> Here's a pamphlet on how to not be a C-U-N-T. <laughs> People often say that if you are a late, late to lose your virginity, you, some, when you get into your adulthood, you kind of make up for lost time. Well, that's, that was me. So all my friends were losing their virginity at 13 and 14 and I was 17 and a half. So I was probably one, one of the last at my school. <laughs> Maybe it's just a part of South London I grew up in. But... Um, yeah, so I used to hear stories from other other guys at school about some of the stuff they were doing at 14, and that was just, like, absolutely mind-blowing. But I definitely feel that because I was a late bloomer, then by the time I was in my, like, early to late 20s, I just went crazy with it because you're almost doing it for your younger self, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was what I, was, I suspected because I was, I was reading through and I, I remember thinking, yeah, if you're a bit of a late bloomer and then you get it full-on, you know, yeah, in your yeah. early 20s because you become a, this star and it's thrown at you. It's almost well, you, like the yeah, forbidden fruit Exactly, because like some guys at school are like, you know, the guys who developed a bit faster than the other guys, you know, they've got biceps and six packs at 13, 14 and they're exceptional at football regardless of what their academics are like or they're the fastest sprinter and then they're really good looking. And then I went to school with guys who slept with like 15 girls by the time they were 16. So chances are they get to the mid to the late 20s and they're not like, oh, I need to just go out there and go crazy because they've already mm. done it. Whereas not only did I, I didn't feel like I needed to go crazy, but given the opportunity and you're presented with like, you can. I read like, that- like a kid in a sweet shop, you know? Exactly. And then like, really, you're just like, yeah, this isn't me. <laughs> you know, it just becomes a bit boring and mundane after a while. Was there a point where you, you, you felt that, where you thought, you know, I have, 
I'm doing all this, but I hate myself. Mm. Was that 2000? Yeah, and then luckily I just, and then I met Aaron. What was, so, but specifically, so was there, was there days where you were waking up thinking, what the fuck is my life? Yeah. Like, it's, it also is like, you come on stage at a gig at 11 p.m. in Manchester. I remember there was this one week where it was just like, I look back as it being one of the worst weeks ever where um, I was just splitting up properly with my ex who I cheated on a lot, you know, moving out from hers. I was pretty lonely because I was living with my step-granddad in like a, an ex-council house in Fulham. Um, and he was like 93. And the whole house was like, it smelled quite bad and it was falling apart. I mean, it's blessing. He was in great shape and for 93. and But obviously the house wasn't, the cleanest, nicest place you could live. I didn't really have much cash, even though I was starting to become quite famous and successful. It was like the money tends to come six months later. You know, you have a number one single or kickstarts with number three in the charts. Your festival fees will go up tenfold, but probably not until the following summer. And mm. um, so I was still living with him. So it was quite, I was quite embarrassed to bring friends or even girls back to this place. Um, so I just moved, finally moved out from about my ex, which has had to happen. It was a long time coming. And then I was like, I, I was did a gig in Manchester, came on stage at 11. And then I had to be up at 4.30 a.m. the next day to shoot a music video because we had to catch a, catch sunrise. And I was like, why can't we do sunset and pretend it's sunrise? You know, so I can actually go home and have a sleep. They were like, oh, the director can't work that late or something. And I remember looking, when I look back, I've never watched the music video since. It's for a video called Two Lives. And the lyric is actually called, it's like two lives, I live in two lives. Don't know which side of me is where the truth lies. That's the chorus. <laughs> um, so it was like a poignant moment recording a music video for a song on about three hours sleep. I looked awful in the video, like huge bags on my eyes. And then went back from the video shoot to this house where my step granddad was. And just sort of sat in bed feeling quite lonely. And then the next day doing like a, a magazine cover shoot and then going straight to Radio 1 to record a live lounge and then going out for dinner that night for, you know, like for a PR press junket or something. And then the next day was like another TV show and another radio show. And then I called this girl to come around just because I literally just wanted a cuddle, <laughs> you know? And then was up there till like 4 a.m. and then up at 8 a.m. and then sat in a taxi for like an hour and a half to go across to like Hackney. Whole time just been like, I remember just getting to the end of the week, just going like, I can't do this. I can't do this. Like, and I remember saying to my manager, I was just like, we need to start cancelling this TV and radio. And he was just like, you know, he's like, you can't cancel going on Graham Norton. You know, you can't cancel going on, you can maybe cancel, no offence, probably cancel going on Sunday brunch. <laughs> Sorry, Sunday brunch. Um, but you just got banned for Sunday yeah, brunch. Yeah, and then and then you're almost like, when's my next day off? In eight days, you know, stuff like that. It was like, what we got this weekend again? Because I, you know, by this point, wouldn't look at the diary because it would scare me. It was like, well, you've got um, Ibiza Rocks Friday, and then you've got Global Gathering Saturday, and then you've got um, something in Finland on Sunday. And then I was like, oh, I've got Monday off. No, 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 you've got Mallorca. And then you've got Ibiza again Tuesday. And then you get into each thing and you're just so completely knackered. I'm fucked. That you're just like, okay, I'll have a drink. Mm. You know, I'm drinking on the plane, drinking when we get there. And then you, you can't remember the gigs. 
I remember like, you look, look at the photos and the videos and you're like, the crowd were having an amazing time. Thank God that I can do this even when I'm at my lowest, when I've got no energy left, when I've had six, seven drinks. But I look back on that and that was one of the worst weeks ever. And then I think that was maybe like June 2011, album came out, no, no, July. And then I went to Australia in October that year to do my first ever Australian tour. And that's when I met Erin. When you're like sort of self-medicating to kind of deal with the pace of life or whatever, it tends to be the case, I mean, just from sitting here speaking to musicians that you're not far, especially when you're like, you use the word lonely, like a lack of connection. You're not far away there from mental health issues like anxiety and depression and those mm. kinds of things typically when you find yourself without connection in your life self-medicating stressed by just looking at the thought of this hectic schedule a lack of sleep i can't imagine the diet was phenomenal no it wasn't i mean like i i've always been into fitness and running and i would like even when i was really really knackered like i've got my apartment still in in fulham right next to craven cottage and it's actually, that, that was a big help because that whole period is just like waking up every day. The river gave me so much calm, like. Were you anxious? Yeah, but you just get up and sit on the balcony and have like, I'll make fried eggs on toast or whatever, beans on toast and just look across the river. And I live in the part of the river where there's no buildings opposite. It's like the Barnes mm. Wetlands Centre. So you feel like you're in the countryside. So that's a great escapism straight away mm. from London in general. So I feel like when I bought that, um, you know, subconsciously, I was probably thinking about this peace and tranquility escape from whenever I'm home. I close the door to my apartment and I've got the river there. Mm. But it was, uh, I think I was quite smart in that I, it, whenever I could, I would go for a swim or I'd go for a, a run. Because I remember my dad used to say to me when he was, so when my mum was pregnant with me, my dad was working, as I said, two hours up in Birmingham, so driving four hours a day because um, it was the only job he could get at the time. He was working for a um, computer services company, um, Nixdorf Siemens Group. Mm -hmm. And he had alopecia as well from stress. His dad was dying. He was pregnant with my mum and he was training for the marathon. And I think that, you know, stress-related alopecia is quite clear why he lost his hair given mm -hmm. everything, the aforementioned things. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I think running is what saved him from a very young age, like that time alone. And like, whenever I go for a run to this day, I don't listen to music. I, I that most people go for, to listen to music for fitness, whatever, that is my brain escapism. And it's either swimming, yoga or running. It's the only time when I can not think about anything else. And whenever I was anxious or stressed about things, that I, those are the things that saved me. I actually think that living by the river, and even if I did it twice a week during those stressful times, just being able to get up and just go for a four mile jog, I don't know where my head would have been like if I hadn't got that, like been able to go out and do that and run by specifically by the river, not through a city mm. with traffic lights and cars, like on straight onto the towpath over Hammersmith Bridge, along the river by fields, over Putney Bridge, back through Bishop's Park, pretty much the area I grew up in. And then also I got to the stage where I was like, I was calling girls up <laughs> to come over and it was like, who's going to give the best cuddle and who's going to stroke me sleep? Like that's where... Again, not didn't mean I make a conscious decision, but looking back now, I'd be like, I don't just want to have like meaningless sex. I just want to actually be held. You know, bear in mind, my mum, dad, and sister all lived on the other side of the world by this point. They'd moved to Australia. You know, didn't have a girlfriend. Like, I had my mates, you know, in my band who would, in a way, traveling with a band back then. So I travel with a DJ now, but back then I traveled 
drums, guitar, bass, and then you know, five or six crew. It was kind of like a little family on the road. Mm. So that was probably better than if I'd been with just a DJ. That would have been quite lonely. Mm. Um, but yeah, I kind of feel like my, there was an, an intelligent, emotionally intelligent part of me I wasn't actually in tune with was inviting girls over who were going to give me the best cuddle and stroke me to sleep. So I just felt, you know, fell in that sort of fetal position and felt loved or felt safe. You know what I mean? Did, did you know you were lonely? Like in the, at the time? No, did I you... didn't at all. That's what I'm saying. But in hindsight. Yeah. There's so many things about that whole period where I was so ambitious and I was so resilient. And I was also, despite what I was putting into my body, all things considered pretty healthy or I, I certainly had endurance um, in terms of what I was capable of, mental endurance and physical endurance. So, yeah, so I wasn't healthy. I mean, I was, <laughs> I just had, a, I just had endurance and I had stamina. And that was probably from, you know, starting the whole uh, drugs and alcohol thing way later than most other people, you know, like say 23, 24. Had I started that at 18, like most of my friends, probably would have burnt out way sooner. But I was in, you know, when I wasn't on tour and I wasn't doing promotions, I was at a gym nearly every day and I'd go to the gym and then for a run. Mm-hmm. So I was in pretty good shape to be able to do all these things. And also performing for 90 minutes on stage can be like playing a football match. And you, you know, sometimes you play five football matches a week. And I would always have a good physio after I'd, I got back, you know, so every three or four days I'd have a full body massage, needles, um, cupping, so on, just to, mm. and then I would, whenever I could, I would spend a whole day, two, three days. I know it doesn't sound that much, but just complete detox. What, what, what was it that made you go from being someone who was dishonest in your relationships and, would would cheat on your partner to being honest and committed. Was there a catalyst event? Was it Erin? Was it? I just think when I met Erin, we just sort of fell so head over in the hills with each other within pretty much the first night. Um, and then she dropped me off at the airport and she was almost a bit tearful. She was like, I don't think I'm ever going to see you again. I bet you've got a girlfriend in every city. I was like, not at all. I just like, I've got a few. <laughs> No, I was like, I've got a few in London, uh, but no, I was like, you, you think too highly of me. I haven't got a girlfriend every city. And then she called her mum and her mum was like, I bet he's got a girlfriend every city. She was like, no, no. She goes, honestly, I think we're going to get married after we spent the night together. Um, but that was my sort of moment. I was just like, reset, go back to who you've always known you were, were, were meant to be, you know, be the person that your mum and dad raised, which is to be honest and faithful and, and you were honest with her from the jump. We basically, we had this, it was weird because we got to know each other a lot over FaceTime. And then she'd come to London for two weeks and go back to Sydney. And then I'd go to Australia maybe for a week. And then we'd speak on the phone for three weeks. And then she'd come to London again for maybe a month. And then I'd go spend Christmas in Australia, do some festivals, but also see my mum and dad and my sister mm. and spend time. I lived with her in Bondi. But because that time becomes so precious, you tell each other absolutely everything. So... I think we'd been together six months and we knew everything about each other in terms of uh, exes, uh, worst fears, you know, biggest achievements, biggest wants, desires, everything sexually, all the partners we've been with. Like you just, it was almost like speed dating crash course of like, you know, we, we, when, you, when people are together, generally they'll be intimate with each other or they'll just laugh and giggle and go out for dinner. You meet each other's friends and so on. When you're chatting over FaceTime, it tends to be more like an interview, mm. you know? So you end up oversharing. What has Erin taught you about love? 
There'll, there'll be a lot of people that are listening to your story and they'll think maybe I'm in the reckless phase where I'm I'm sampling all the forbidden fruit. And then it seems quite clear from your story that you you met this person and as you said, you kind of both changed each other. But what 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 advice can you impart on on someone who's in that reckless phase? Oh, and I think if people are in a reckless phase, you you either you're like I'm, I need to do this now, and I don't know how long you're going to do that for. But people, if you're smart, you can work it out. I st- I've got guys I know now who are like they th- that because that, you know they they work in high intensity, high pressured worlds of like finance and hedge funds, and I know a lot of guys who want to settle down but also on the side want to continue having these other experiences with women and I think they feel that they have a right to do that now I'm not sure if that's because of the mentality of a lot of the people that they work in that world with you know like it's a boys club sort of thing and and that's that's you know that's just how it is I feel like some of them you know like there's a lot of guys who are like seem to be happily married with kids my age a bit older and seem to have all these other girlfriends and flings and bits on the side. If you'd met Aaron at another phase in your life, though, do you think it would have worked out? Do you th- so I'm no, trying- I met, we met at the perfect time. That's what she'd just met up with someone. Like timing is a, is a key factor. Yeah, she'd been single for maybe seven weeks and I'd been single for maybe three months. If you'd met her at, say, 20, I don't know, five? I don't think so. If I'd have met her two or three years earlier, it wouldn't have worked. We met at exactly, right? It was almost like the stars aligned. The universe decided that we were going to collide at that moment. You mentioned she was a Gemini and then you just mentioned the universe decided. Are you at all um, spiritual? I wasn't and I am now. Did she have a role to play in that? Yeah, I guess so. Because, you know, I just, I used to just think I was in control of everything. And I know I was one of these people, I was like, I don't believe in luck. You make your own luck. Because that was kind of what my dad would instill in me. And I've never been religious and I never used to believe in Zodiacs, but then I, I did used to believe, you know, after I'd uh, read some Stephen Hawking stuff, mm. and then you start reading books on lateral thinking and the laws of attraction and so on, you sort of go, oh, actually, yeah, we are just atoms just bouncing off one, one another, it's just like, because we've got brains and we can make our own decisions, but that doesn't still mean that we aren't in control of the energy around us and the energy around other people and how we collide and then what things come out of that. Um, so as soon as I got my head around that and then Erin started explaining the Zodiac and when you were born and what time of day you were born and, you know, the the distance between planets and so on and what moon it was that day. I, used to, I, d- I guess I didn't have the patience for it before. Mm-hmm. And then like she started explaining and you go, actually, yeah. And that's why people have certain traits and so on. I'm not like, I'm more into like spirituality since, um, you know, I'd start doing yoga, for instance, and meditation, you know, like two or three times a week. We'll do a sauna and ice bath, put the kids to bed. We'll do like 10 minutes sauna, two minutes ice, 10 (laughs) minutes sauna, two minutes ice. And then you just come out, just feel like, you know, you feel so alive. Mm. Um, And then the moment you kind of, have kids and you're like oh my god there's these other human beings that we made you do get in touch a lot more with your your spiritual side i think because you're just like you know you could like science and spirituality can go side by side i think Mm. you know i think that the spiritual awareness of oneself actually comes from having a greater understanding of science and the way the universe works in general what impact has that had on your life yoga breath work and all that stuff 
I think the breath work's been incredible. Mm. Like, so if it doesn't involve like ice or meditation, even I, I listen to, um, there's a guy I know back in Brisbane, he's got something called the Breath Collective and he gets people in like groups of 20 around to his house, clears out like, all the sofa out of the way and, and the TV and they all sit on the floor on their backs with their eyes closed. And it's like, it's that Wim Hof style of, you know, like um, short breath out, like deep breath in, short breath out, and then holding your breath you know, in that moment and you feel all the physical changes in your body. Like I'll do it a couple of nights a week. I did it last night because I wanted to have a good night's sleep. Mm. There's a lot of stuff going on in my head. But like, it's hard. If you'd have tried to sell that to a younger me, I would have been like, you're having a fucking laugh, mate. You want me to spend 10 minutes of my day breathing in and out in silence? What you? Because I just didn't understand how to relax and how to be at peace with myself and how to actually deal with my inner thoughts and inner demons, you know? How much credit does Aaron deserve for this? Um, a huge amount, really. She's um, just watching someone grow a baby and give birth and then breastfeed them for a year. is like one of the most sobering experiences ever. You know, it's like, it just blows your mind. Like, I just think the moment, the rush, of adrenaline and endorphins, whatever that I got when she gave birth to our first standing up. Standing up? Yeah. She'd been training a whole way through her pregnancy as well. Like she found a form of uh, pregnancy hit training, which had been approved by her, her midwife and her GP. Obviously not crazy jumping around, but you know, squats and lunges and, and so on and push ups. obviously not much ab work, but she was reading lots of um, research saying, you know, the, the healthier the mother is, you know, yeah. It's like if you eat nuts during pregnancy, child has no chance of having a nut allergy. Like if the mother eats enough nuts during it. Um, likewise, if she gets her heart rate up to a, a safe level, that baby would be born with a, like, less likely to have a heart condition. And there's other research shows that if the mother does an X amount of training throughout you know, it even goes back to say the hunter gatherer sort of period where a, a female might have to be on the move constantly mm -hmm. or on the run mm -hmm. whilst holding a baby and what that instills in the baby's genetic makeup when they're born. Like, you know, I'd have to find the research papers, but there's stuff that she was reading about your baby will have zero chance of asthma if you do X amount of exercise whilst you're growing that baby. And mm. it can all be passed on. Like the science behind it's mental. It's like, when uh, like your, your baby has a way uh, higher chance of starting life with a better immune system, just from breastfeeding alone, if you a mother can breastfeed, because the baby's saliva passes information to the nipple. And then the nipple tells the mother what to put more of into Christ. the milk. So it would be like if the baby's lacking in iron or zinc or certain vitamins, it's saliva from the baby's mouth will tell that to the nipple and then the mother will produce milk with more zinc, more magnesium, wow. more vitamin D to, to give the baby. So which is why a lot of babies have better immune systems when they're breastfed and not bottle fed. Mm. So it's just, you know, like on formula. So crazy stuff crazy. like that. But then, yeah, just seeing my wife, like and she had no gas, no epidural, no, no assistance, no you know, drugs as it were to help her through pain relief. And she gave birth standing up and like the midwife was like, catch your baby. Who, who caught it? You caught it. No, she did. She and then I was, and then she just sort of collapsed into my legs and we just sat there and then 
didn't even look at see if it was a boy or a girl for like the first 10 minutes. We were just so in awe. It was like this whole, it's the most alive I've ever felt. <laughs> it's mental. And like, because apparently the, um, the tailbone actually blocks the baby's head from coming out. So human beings, women should give birth on all fours or standing up. They're not meant to give birth on their backs because where the tailbone goes under, the baby's head's trying to come uh, out. It's right, actually, yeah, yeah. women should be standing up. So that tailbone's like disengaged and can baby can basically just fall straight out. <laughs> Mad, right? Yeah, crazy. I bet you weren't expecting this today. No, I wasn't, but there you go. <laughs> Every day's a school day. You So you, you give birth to your first, and one of the things that I read about was you tragically had a miscarriage on your second. Yeah, the second one. I think we got so, I don't want to say cocky, so we're so excited. And the first one seemed to go so well. Um, everything from when she found out she was pregnant to giving birth, that you're not meant to tell people that early on. But then when she found out she was pregnant with the second one that we lost, it was only been five weeks and really you're meant to wait quite a bit longer and have your first scan and so on. We went around and told everyone and then she lost it a few, a few weeks later, just before, you know, like the safe date. So that was pretty, pretty tough. I, I remember I was invited onto Lorraine mm. Kelly show and I was meant to go on and talk about a single on a tour. And then it kind of blindsided me and it was just before I went on, they went, we just found out you lost the second baby. Do you want to make the whole interview about that? And I was like, for what reason? They were just like, because we've never had a guy come on here and talk about it before. It's definitely not like a celebrity. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> so the whole interview became about that. And it was actually, it was quite positive because I got so many messages from guys afterwards just going, that's amazing you went on and spoke about that. Because guys are just like, woman's just lost a baby. Uh, guys have just got to get on with it and deal with it by themselves. Just do everything they can to support the mother. What was it like for you? Well, it was really tough because you just don't know how to, you're like, oh my God, this is actually something that was living inside of her that has now died and I've just got to be there for her and I'm just going to have to like suck it up and get on with it. Because no one ever really asked the dad, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? It's not in really in our, in our society. It's not normal. Everyone just goes, oh my God, how is she? How were you feeling? Like just helpless, really. It's awful. But yeah, Erin's um, dad was great, and my dad was great as well. In terms of, uh, you know, how do you feel? How do you think you should feel? How do you want to feel? How do you? What do you think you need to do to get through this? Especially when you've already got a baby, mm -hmm. and then you're just like, how beautiful that whole experience was, and you're like, oh, could have another one, and then you start, is this going to happen with the next one, the next one? Yeah, tough. Yeah, men don't, I mean, all of the, even like, men aren't really even taught how to deal with how they're feeling themselves, right? No, so like, I, 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 I've actually, you know, doing stuff like this and doing interviews with either magazines or television shows, I've realized there's been sometimes, there's been the first times I've spoken about things that I should have probably spoken about with friends or family a long time ago, you know? Because we're just, you're like, it's either the whole macho thing of, you don't talk about that, you know, just mm. get on with it. Like that's a woman's thing, you, you know, women, mm. women discuss things like that. Whether it, I'm not even talking about miscarriages, I'm talking about relationships or, you know. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky. And it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. When you look forward at your future then, so you've got this eighth studio album coming out. What, what, what? What do you want the next five, 10 years to look like in terms of your career? I would love to accidentally somehow have a chart hit again, just to remember what it feels like. You Interesting. Know? Yeah. It's not key to me, but it'd be amazing to have like a number, number one album or a top 10 single, you know, it'd probably be based on streams rather than sales in this day and age. But, Why? you know, some, some, just because I want to remember how it feels. You've forgotten? Yeah, I've forgotten what it kind of feels like. Cause it was 10 years ago. You know, I had... I had like 22 top 40 singles. Um, I think seven top 10s, two number ones. But I haven't had anything for so long, but I'm still going. Like my, my tour sells out in a way that you would assume that I was still having hits, but then you realize that hits aren't that important. And what's important for me is just making songs that go off when you perform live. You know, so, you know, I did an hour on Saturday night. There were probably seven hits in there. The other uh, nine songs weren't hits but they still go off like they're hits people majority of the crowd know them word for word the energy's there you know the build the drop i did the last sold out tour in the uk of any artist before covid hmm. um which was uh march 2020 i played uh kentish town forum sold out March the 7th, I was back in Australia by 9th. I think 10 days later, we went into lockdown in Brisbane and then the rest of the UK and the world followed pretty much like April that year. So I played the last ever tour. And then I played the first festival anywhere in the world after COVID. I mean, COVID was still, everyone was in lockdown in England, America, and so on. I played up in Darwin in the Northern Territory in Australia. I played 5,000 people. Crazy. They'd had 23 COVID cases. So as long as you go out there with a negative test, so I was at a festival in October, October 2021. Uh, no, October 2020. Hmm. Um, playing a gig in Darwin, 5,000 people. And then I came back and just did my January, February tour. So I did one of the first sold out tours after COVID. So I'm, I feel like live music and my performance is like my bread and butter. It's what I know best. It's what I do best. But it would be really nice to, you know, taste of a little bit of success again with a with a song that maybe like because it's still don't forget that there's i'm still in a situation where i've got 40 gigs this summer anyone who follows me on instagram is like wow amazing you're having the best year forever forever but i still bump into people in the street and it's like a taxi driver on the way here today he's like yeah, example ain't you like yeah you go what's you been doing you haven't released new music for years so like, well released an album in june i did release another album last year and how does that feel it's quite it just makes it just goes shows goes to show you that there's, there's some people think if you're not on Jonathan Ross or Graham Norton or on Capital FM or on Radio One and you're not playing Radio One's big weekend or doing Capital Summertime Ball, then you've retired. And then there's another bunch of people who hear you in the clubs or listen to you on Spotify playlists and have no idea even what Radio One or Capital FM is. And 
then there's your diehards who follow you and know every move you're doing from your Instagram. But, you know, the, I don't tweet that much anymore because it's become quite a toxic place. But, you know, the, you meet people and they're just like, oh, I didn't even know you were playing. Like, well, you know, you'll be like, they'll be like, oh, mate, what are you doing in Newcastle? You're like, I'm playing Newcastle Academy tonight. They're like, but I followed you on Twitter. I've not seen anything on your... You know, because I used to be known for tweeting quite a lot back around 2011 and 12. I used to get into a lot of trouble and have arguments and such on there. But you realise that everyone has their way of discovering and digesting and discovering, you know, discovering music. Um, the same way we do with films and so on, or how you read about. Some people just read BBC Sport. Some people just follow a Twitter account that updates you on the Premier League. And there's some people who only find out about music from Spotify, and there's some people who still only religiously listen to the Capital Breakfast Show every morning. And the thing that I find is I just have to know where my fans are and what they want. There's always going to be that group of people, though, that if you're not in the charts, they think that you've either retired or fallen exactly. Off or and they still think that's the case for me. So I'll be like, even when I got a taxi to Brixton in February, because I'd, I'd like to get black taxis mainly because my, one of my co my cousins a black cab driver right. and he's like, you can't you can't use Uber. <laughs> um, I like the tube, but whilst I'm blonde, which is for the foreseeable future, the tube's not a safe place for me at the mm. moment. Um, it's a selfie central. Um, and then obviously you have one or two and then that leads to 10 more and 20 more. And I don't mind meeting the general public. I love it. But it also, it's nice to just sit on a tube and listen to music sometimes rather than having constant photos. But this guy was like, so what are you doing? Were you going, was there, was there a gig plans? And I was like, yeah, it's my gig. He's like, oh, what? Well, I'm driving examples of his own gig. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, you're taking me to soundcheck now. He went, oh, I could have sworn you retired. Like, my, my eldest used to come watch you. Does that piss you off a bit? Yeah, because I'm like, <laughs> when they're like, my eldest used to watch you, I'm like, well, if he just followed me on Instagram, he could still keep up to date with my song releases and he could still come and watch. Anyway, I ended up putting all three of his kids and their partners on the guest list. Oh, really? And then I got a DM, I think, from one of his sons the next day. I think his son was maybe 26. He was like, oh, it's time of my life reminding me. Of so you've just realised that because you're not on Capital FM anymore, that certain people, if like, I don't know, they could be a painter decorator, they could be an estate agent, they could be a, you know, a taxi driver, whatever, but everyone has their go-to places for music and mm -hmm. it might be like, in your office where you work, all day on, they have Radio 1 on. Mm. So whatever's on Radio 1 may dictate which festivals they go to or who they mm. go and see on tour because it's advertised on there. It's like, you know, like playing at V Festival, playing at Creamfields mm. is blah, 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 blah. But if you're not, if other people only discover music from their spinning class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And whatever music's playing. So people message me and go, oh, your new single was on in my mm. spinning class today. I didn't even realise you were still releasing music. And you almost want to go, well, I've released three albums mm. since then and you know 11 singles but you can't it is quite frustrating was that you left you kind of left the when you were with those labels and you were charting all the time with these with these these like big global hits you leave that game and then it, was there a moment where it was difficult to deal with the what you've described there, where it was most difficult to deal with it, where people are going, where are you? Like, where's, where's the music? Like, why aren't you charting? What, if you fall in Well, off? it is. You know what also is really frustrating is like, so I've performed in 27 countries in Europe. Um, I'd say about 10 of those countries, I've, I've headlined festivals. So there was a period where I was really big in Finland, Hungary, Estonia, uh, Czech, uh, Slovenia, Slovakia, Latvia, Lithuania. I'll be doing one or two festivals in those countries every year for four or five years headlining or second on the bill really really decent fees mm. and then you i left ministry of sound um 2013 signed to sony didn't really have any, had no success at sony i think i had one top 10 single album bombed they spent a fortune on it 
didn't really know where to position me. And all of a sudden, all the gigs dried up in these countries as well. And I, we were going back to them like with Spotify numbers and, you know, saying, well, he's still got, you know, 4% of his fans uh, are in Hungary, which is massive considering mm. my fan base in the UK and Australia is my second biggest, like 4% in Hungary. And then it would be like, you know, 1% of his listeners are Poland. That's a pretty yeah. big listenership still. And then it was like 2.8% of his listenership in Colombia. And you go to these promoters and they'll just be like, look, his last single, like 10% of his listeners came from your country. And they're almost like, yeah, but he's not on radio. And you're like, radio fucking dead, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, I haven't been and done a chat show in Germany for a bit, so I'm not getting... I played the biggest festival in Germany. It's called Rock am Ring and Rock in Park. So that's like they're Reading and Leeds. I played that festival three times. Unbelievable, massive crowds. I knew the words, word for word, like half my set. I had three top 10 singles in Germany. And then the moment you're not on radio, they're like, no, I would like to book him, but uh, until he gets back on the radio. And you're mm. like, well, they know my other hits and like, mm. and there's people streaming the new stuff. Mm. So this summer we got, we've got Bene Kassim in Spain. Um, we've got a gig lined up in Portugal and I'm playing Amsterdam this Friday. Um, but it's been really tough like to actually go in and like almost having to present the figures. I see this with artists that, that have that meteoric, I mean, I sat here with Craig David and he's a, an example of an artist at 18 years old. I think he had a number one album, something fucking staggering. And so then, he's only like a year older than me, but in my mind, Craig David was like five or six years yeah, older because yeah, yeah. he was in so the charts young. at the same age as I was listening yeah. to. So I was in clubs listening to garage music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he was on Top of the Pops. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I didn't have any success until eight years after that. So I was 26, 27. Yeah, and Which, there's a 22 year gap between yeah. when Craig David, I think, had his first one to his his most yeah. recent album. Is there a thing of like, you basically start competing with a former version of your success? You have to. I only compete with myself. Like, and when I'm in the studio, I'm only competing with myself. But the former, the, the, the- Yeah, and my former person, which is why I say to you, I'm over the moon that I've got my busiest summer in six years. Um, I'm, 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 I'm so in love with this album. I'm still playing this album. Like, even though it's been finished for months. Um, but that's why I'm like, I'd love to just taste that chart success again. Just once or twice. A, to shut up all the people who think I'm retired. And B, just to remember what it feels like. You know, it's, it's almost like a little validation that my career is going to continue for the next five, six, seven, eight years. As, as long as I stay fit and healthy and I keep producing music and people still want to come and, you know, they choose one night a year, they go out to a gig, 10 of their mates get absolutely off their face and have the time of life. If they, I want them to pick me for that then I've got a career. Mm. I don't need anything else. I don't need radio. I don't even really need streaming. Um, but it would just be nice to have that validation. And I shouldn't be sat here going, I need validation, but it would be really nice to feel that again. So every time I get in a taxi, it's like, oh, you shan't, all right. Yeah, I heard you. I see you on Journal from Ross the other day. I thought you'd given up, you know, as Australia, <laughs> rather than just sitting there going, I've never stopped releasing music. I've never stopped touring. Like, I've been touring for 16 years. I've been releasing music for 16 years. But... <laughs> you know what I mean? No, yeah. Slightly frustrating, but... I, I think this about myself, and when you're talking about having this kind of chasing the, the former version of yourself, I worry about that sometimes. I think, I always think, to, especially now that I'm on Dragon's Den on the BBC, I think when I come off that, the cabbie who watches BBC One but doesn't have a clue about podcasting yeah, or yeah, Instagram yeah, yeah. is going to happen. Well, you have some people, you're, oh, you're the podcast guy. And there's other people, oh, the you're the ones. dragon, you're yeah, the dragon. Yeah, yeah. It's an age thing for me. Yeah, yeah. Someone's coming up to me in the street, I, I know exactly where they know me from by the by their demographic. And if if a 
56-year-old male comes up to me, oh, you're on Dragon's Den. Yeah, yeah. He has no idea that I do anything else or that I'm, you know. So so in saying that, right, so on my last tour, uh, most nights I come out after our stage before I get on the tour bus and, you know, my tour manager will be out and he'll be like, look, you'll be out in about an hour if you want to wear it. I know it's cold. Put a hoodie on, you know. <laughs> Like he makes sure they're all, they're, you know, I say, just go and give him a load of uh, Monster Munch or whatever, you know, so he goes out with a big, whatever's left on our rider, mm. Monster Munch, maybe a couple of beers, he checks their age. And so some, you might have 200 people waiting after the gig. And then by the time I come out at 11, 30, 12, there might only be 20. But I'll always say to him, where, where, where did you buy this ticket from? And why did you buy this ticket? It just as a little bit of market research. And all the young kids are like, we saw it advertised on your Instagram. And pretty much anyone over 30, 40 years old, they saw a billboard, a billboard yeah. on a, a bus stop or on a train station, or their friend forwarded them a link from gigs and tours or bands in town on Facebook. Mm. So even though I'm not on bands in town, I don't go on Facebook much. I don't really decide when my posters are put up. That's like the, you know, the touring company, the promotions company decide that. As long as these people know where to find me, that's great. Mm. And then they come to the gig and then maybe there's like four or five songs they haven't heard that I've released in the last two years, but chances are the two of them they'll fall in love with and go back and continue to stream those songs mm. or they add it to their playlist. Mm. There's a need though to, to try to de detach a little bit from the external validation driving your self-opinion, I guess, because as much as it can be like a good driver of ambition and competition and having something to aim for is great, you don't want to be dragged, like, because you, because... I can see how an artist who is used to getting number ones all the time could get a number two and feel like shit because yeah. it's a number two. Whereas really, without all the number ones, the number two is unbelievable. Well, yeah, I was like saying this earlier. These these here are my chart top tens. Yeah. All of those, those are my three number twos. That was actually unorthodox with Wretch. Yeah, yeah. That was We'll Be Coming Back with Calvin. And that was Say Nothing, which came out just after that. And even looking back, it's just like, like to go from six to three, from two to one, it would have been nice if those last, it just went one, one, one. Like the difference, <laughs> you know, like the difference between that one and number one was about 267 downloads on iTunes. And the difference between that one, that one was maybe like 400 and something. Mm. And it's like, I know it's nice to say, it's amazing to say I've had two number one singles and a number one album um, out of everything that I've done in my career. But it would be like extra nice to say, I've had four number ones, you know what I mean? <laughs> but that's exactly what I mean. It's, it's you're never yeah. going to be... You're but I, I don't lose sleep over it. What can you tell me about this album? Can I, can, why wouldn't I like listen to something? I, wanna, I, wanna, I need some kind of flavour of this, this eighth album. Um, there's, I've never done drum and bass before. And there's two drum and bass tracks on it. Okay. Uh, I've, I used to, when I started MCing at like 15, it was mainly over UK Garage or Garage. Garage. Um, and the 10 tracks on this album are Garage. Um, and then there's three drill tracks. Really? Um, with probably the best spitting I've ever done. There's like, I'll play you a song afterwards, but there's a track where I'm just spitting straight for three minutes. Uh, we shot the first half of the video in a uh, shipping container yard in Brisbane, which being Brisbane, we got to use for free. <laughs> like complete, no regulations, just like, yeah, mate, uh, open the gate for you, we'll be back at eight. Just go where you want, just don't, don't, don't break a leg or anything, don't do anything stupid. Um, so we shot this video, which I directed, in a container yard, then one of my mates who's in construction, we shot the second half of the video on the roof of his new apartment block where I'm standing on top of the lift shaft and then we've got drone footage going around me. Mm. Um, very cost-effective video and it's basically just me rapping solidly for three minutes. And I think 
it's probably the best rapping spitting I've ever done. I based it all on Busta Rhymes. That mm. I used, you know, from back when I was like 17. So I'm just hoping, well, I know that when people hear this album, they're going to go, fuck, he sounds, he sounds good. He sounds comfortable. He sounds the most confident, best like, performances I've ever heard him do. I, I truly believe that. Like, and I can't wait for people to hear it because it's also like you associate drill music with uh, gangs and mm. <laughs> knife crime and <laughs> selling drugs. And I've basically just taken inspiration from the beats um, and just done Elliot. You know, I'm being true to myself. I'm not, that was just what I've always done. It's just like, I used to feel like, as I was saying to you just off air before, I used to feel like I was this uninvited guest to rap and hip hop because I felt that you needed certain credentials, you know, to do it. And then you slowly realize that, no, it's just like an art form. As long as you're respectful of the culture, it's just like, what are you doing with that, that music? What, what story are you telling? And you've always just got to tell your own story, I guess. Having been through all of this, Elliot, if I yeah. may call you Elliot, having been through the fame, the, you know, the, the, the ups and downs of the music industry, the, you know, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, all of it, and also the family, the kids and all of that, if you were advising a younger Elliot who might be listening to this and what actually matters in terms of the components that make for a good life, what would you say now in hindsight, having tasted it all? Right now, I mean, like, being a dad is so, so important to me and so rewarding, especially once the little one, Enyo, who's now four, he was a bit later with the speech. The fact he can now speak it's like my young, my eldest, Evander, he was speaking like eight, 18 months, he was saying words. And then our, our youngest didn't really start speaking until he was three. But now it's not only just being able to communicate with them, but then listen to them speak to each other. Hmm. There's bonkers stuff that comes out of their mouth. It's just like, it's the most rewarding thing of the day. Like I'll spend most of the day just writing down quotes they've said and send hmm. them to my mum and dad or my sister or to Erin's family. Just like, you won't believe and like, the stuff that comes out of the mouth. That's, that's like, for me, it's like, I love cooking. I love food. I love fine dining. I love eating out. Like food is so important to me. Training is so important to me. Sleep is important to me. Sex is important to me. Being a dad's important to me. And if I'm being totally honest, like I make music for a living, but I could right now, I love being on stage, but if it was someone was like, you've got another year now, you're not going to write one song or do another gig. I'd be totally happy with that. As long as I had all the other things. Interesting. We have a we have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest writes the question for the next guest. Okay. And I I read it now, so I, I haven't seen this before. Um, it says, of all the achievements in your life, which do you think made the biggest impact on another? On another? I'm going to guess they mean... Also, oh, everything you've achieved on another person? Yes. Of all the achievements in your life, which do you think made the biggest impact on another person? Um, that's interesting. That's a really good question. Achievements in your life, which one do you make? That is a really interesting question. Well, do you know what I, what I would say, actually, and I could probably apply this to a few, I'll apply it to two people rather than just one person in particular, is there's a guy Three, three, three people in particular. So there was a guy uh, called David Stewart, who was my guitarist for three and a half years. 
um, very different to me as like a private school educated kid. Um, but, and, and, you know, grew up in, in money, if you like, near, near Westbourne Grove. And we used to rib him quite a bit. He was like six, seven years younger than all of us, but he was a great kid, really good guitarist, really good uh, keyboard player, great singer, good looking. He always wanted to make it as a solo artist. And for whatever reason, this was around the same time Ed Sheeran started blowing up where it's like, you could be the best looking kid in the world, but you know, no offense, Ed's a really good mate of mine, but you know what I mean? Ed's not a model. Um, he's not that Justin Timberlake cut. But David Stewart, fair play to him. Like We spent a lot of time writing songs together. I would try and hone his lyrics. He was amazing with melody. And he's now officially the most successful songwriter in the world in terms really? of streams. So he wrote uh, the last three Jonas Brothers singles and he wrote uh, Dynamite for BTS, which is wow. I think the third or fourth most streamed song of all time. It was the most streamed song of the last year. I'm not saying he owes that to me, but what I'm saying is I know for a fact that his years on the road with me and the time me writing songs with him was instrumental in his drive and ambition mm. and his craft. I feel like he may have gone on to do this anyway, but he, you know, he, he definitely, I feel like success, but he's mm. more success. And like, I'm really proud of him, like mm. that he's now the most successful songwriter in the world. You know, and then there's like my, my guitarist who replaced him, another guy called Kai Kai. He's gone on to be very successful. Composer, he went, left me to go and play guitar with Dua Lipa for a few years when she was blown up. And my, my drummer, um, he was playing with uh, The Streets and Lily Allen and played with me for five years. He went on to help put together Ed Sheeran's live show and create the technology behind his loop pedals. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then my playback guy, he's the guy who runs the laptops, which run alongside the live musicians. He's gone on to put together huge shows for Kygo in oh, yeah. Las Vegas. So I feel like nearly everybody who's worked alongside with me, I've learned from them. And then, but they've, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I'm glad that they've all gone on mm. to do huge things. They haven't gone on to just be standard session musicians. Mm. You know, like my bass player, Andy Sheldrake's now a, a producer in his own right. He produced all night. So that song was oh, just yeah. me and him. You know, so my, biggest song, I suppose, from the second year of my career was down to him. Like everybody, there's not one person I've worked with closely uh, in a musical level, you know, in terms of what people regard as session musicians. Most session musicians just go on to play for other bands on the road for eternity, mm -hmm. you know, earning three, 400 pounds a gig and are playing into their fifties or sixties, just getting by. Whereas all the guys who've been part of my band, who are basically my brothers on tour, my family, all been made incredible success of themselves. That's dope. And I mean, that's, that, that says a lot about the environment that you guys have together when yeah. you're together and like, yeah, I'm quite proud of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I didn't try, I didn't intend to do that. It was just, obviously it was clearly a nice place mm. to work and was inspirational and was very creative and, mm. and ambitious. And they've parted company with me all on good terms mm. and have gone, I'm not just going to sit back. I'm just going to go and do what Elliot's done in my own way. Mm -hmm. And in David Stewart's case, it's like stratospheric, you know, like produced and wrote the biggest song in the world that year for a Korean pop band. Mental. Mad. Elliot, example. Thank you. Mate, Thank thanks you. for having me. I've loved this. Yeah, awesome. I mean, these conversations all are all so, so unbelievably different, but I think your honesty 
And like, there's a real sort of overwhelming sense of inspiration I get from watching a man go on a journey and change in so many really fundamental ways in terms of their character, their craft, their art, and even like their emotional awareness and their ability to like be in touch with their emotions. It tends to be the case that women can be the catalyst. Certainly for me, it was. You meet the right <laughs> You're woman. You're very easy right to time. speak to though, I must say. You're... <laughs> You, uh, you give me a, a, sen- a real sense of safety in that I can talk about whatever I want and there's no agenda, which That's is good. That's really interesting. Yeah, because, you know, it's funny because I write these questions down. That I actually don't write any questions down, but I write like bullet points, things to remember. And then I genuinely go in the direction that, that I, I'm interested in. But so many things you talk about, even from breathwork, my, my, my girlfriend is a breathwork practitioner. So I'm doing breathwork all the time these days. You know, the Wim Hof thing, we've just booked a retreat to do Wim Hof's ice yeah. thing. Um, See, I had no idea about any of this. Yeah, so. exactly. So that's why, like, when you're saying it, I find it really yeah. intriguing to, like, probe in around there. Yeah. Um, but it's all led by curiosity. And there's so much in your story that is really, really inspiring to me. And I'm actually, the most inspiring thing for me is what happens next. So the most inspiring thing to me is seeing how your eighth album plays out, how you continue to, like, move with the changing times and changing yeah, yeah. platforms and who that that creative and artist becomes. But yeah, thank you for your time today. I love Thanks these conversations well. and it's been super energizing for me. Amazing. And I know it will be for everybody that's listened. So thank, thank you. God. Cheers, bro. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.